0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, yes, I'm. I'm actually on vacation. If you work for the government, this is how you spend your vacation. Um, let's see. Um, so we're going to start with some uh, some slides, uh, some questions. All right, never mind. This is uh, presenter view. We don't want that. Let we'll just swap displays. Bear with me one second. Uh, I will figure it out. All right, never mind. We'll start like this. Oh, I can see a screen there, that's good. We're going to start with some um, question slides. I have no financial affiliations to disclose. I wish I did, but there you go. Um, All right, some learning objectives. What we'd like to do um, in this session is to identify the causes of immune activation in HIV disease. Uh, We're going to discuss the consequences of immune uh, activation in HIV disease. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the the interaction between immune activation, um, HIV latency, and um, the possibility of a cure, or a functional cure, for HIV infection. So we're going to start with the questions. Um, You all have your little um, buttons that you can press. What happens to systemic immune activation during combination antiretroviral therapy? Decreases to normal levels, it goes up, It decreases to above normal levels, and it stays the same. I love this song. And the answer was, why don't you guys come here and give the talk instead of me? You're good. All right, let's go to the next question. Which anatomical sites most likely contain the bulk of the HIV reservoir while on combination antiretroviral therapy, the blood, the brain, the gut, or the lymphoid tissues? Very good, very good answer. Okay, so hopefully at the end of the talk, we'll see if that changes. And then finally, the third question, is there ongoing virus replication on combination antiretroviral therapy? Yes, no, maybe, only on some. You're a pretty brave audience actually. that's pretty good. Um, I like you guys already. okay, so we'll see how this changes at the end of the uh, at the end of the talk. Um, so let's go on to the next slide. there we go. So we're talking about immune activation. So what do we mean when we talk about immune activation? Well what I'm showing you here is um, a paper from a few years ago from um, Stacy and co-workers. What they did was to look at HIV-infected individuals from before their infection through their infection, that you can see here, through the acute phase, and they measured a whole bunch of cytokines in plasma, along with viral load. Virus load is in white, cytokines are in black. And what you can see is that at the same time that virus load goes up, or even before virus load goes up, there is an increase in these plasma cytokines that you can see here. And this is normal. This is the normal innate immune response to virus infection in the acute phase of a virus infection. You have this innate response if you have influenza, if you have hepatitis A, B, or C. And as you know, if you didn't have this innate immune response, you would die. Okay? This is what keeps you alive. But the special thing about HIV that differentiates it from, for example, Hep B or Hep C, is that with HIV, as virus load decreases, immune activation persists. That's manifested in many different ways, and there's the list here. The innate immune system, you have cells like macrophages which are activated. As I said, lots of cytokines and chemokines floating around in the plasma. Activation of your acute phase response, you know all this stuff. Serum amyloid A, CRP, coagulation cascade is activated. That can't be good for you. Fibrosis is activated. And with the adaptive immune systems, with T cells and B cells, there's increased activation and increased turnover of T cells and B cells. They become exhausted. And why this is important is because the frequency of activated T cells in an infected individual is known to be a very strong predictor of disease progression. And we've known that for quite a long time. Now, what about the causes? of chronic immune activation in HIV disease? Well, first of all, let me remind you that the raised cytokine and chemokine levels that we've been talking about are a consequence of something that causes immune activation. They themselves are not a cause of immune activation. Well, we just talked about the virus. HIV is a virus. It'll cause activation of the innate immune system. But is all the immune activation due to HIV? Probably not. As we've just discussed, when virus load decreases after the acute phase, activation remains elevated. The virus load itself is a poor predictor of disease progression. And measures of activation predict disease progression independently of virus load. Now, you're probably all familiar with elite controllers who control virus load down to undetectable levels, but who may nevertheless progress. And they have an increased frequency of T cells that express CD38, the so-called activated T cells. And finally, when virus load is suppressed with antiretroviral therapy, immune activation still persists and predicts progression. So it's not just the virus that causes immune activation. Well, you are immune suppressed when you have HIV disease. You don't control other pathogens very well. So you'll have an increased antigen load, bacterial overgrowth. And Steve Deeks and Peter Hunt uh, particularly favor, and I agree with them on this, um, herpes viruses as a cause of chronic immune activation. And we and others have done work uh, over the past few years on the translocation of pro-inflammatory mediators across the gut mucosa. And I'm going to touch on that now. So this is what a normal gut looks like. This is a healthy gut. It has tight epithelial junctions and a layer of mucus. It secretes antimicrobial peptides into the lumen, tons and tons of antibodies, and tons and tons of cells, such as macrophages and CD4 T cells. In fact, the majority of all the CD4 T cells in the body are contained in the gut. and That makes sense, because it's the greatest surface that you have in contact with the outside world. So you would want the most of your immune system at that mucosal surface to stop all that muck from getting inside. And there's a crosstalk between the microbes and the lumen and the epithelial cells and the immune cells to keep the outside out and the inside safe from all these bacteria. But what happens in HIV infection, the first thing that happens in the acute phase of the infection is that there is a massive, massive loss of CD4 T cells. What accompanies that is an enteropathy. So you have enterocyte apoptosis that you can see here. And a two to tenfold increase in gut permeability. Your gut becomes leaky. The result of that is the translocation of microbial products, you can see them here crossing over. And those microbial products enter the systemic circulation and cause systemic immune activation. So let's now put together the early causes of immune activation, the early events in pathogenesis. All right, We start with the virus. This is what Steve Deeks likes to call my circle picture. Um, it's roughly the same circle picture I've been showing a few years, uh, for a few years, but I add new bits to the circle picture, so you can see it evolving. And if anyone has ideas, tell them, and I'll add them. I promise. You start with the virus, and it infects the gut. Okay, it causes CD4 T cell depletion and an enteropathy. That causes microbial translocation, which causes immune activation. And the virus itself, because it's a virus, causes immune activation. Now the immune activation causes T cell proliferation, and therefore the generation of target cells. Now HIV likes to activate proliferating T cells. It infects them, and that produces more virus. And because they've been infected, those T cells die. So you lose T cells, and that causes immune deficiency, which causes problems in pathogen control at the gut. Okay, now immune activation also causes a few other things that we won't have time to go into in a lot of detail: low thymic output, lymphoid tissue fibrosis, and T and B cell dysfunction. Now all those cause is more immune activate, more immune deficiency. Sorry, and the immune deficiency means you have poor pathogen control poor control of all kinds of bacteria and viruses that we don't know, some that we do know of, and that's CMV. And as you can imagine, those also cause immune activation, adding to this cycle of immune activation and immune deficiency. Immune activation also causes non-immunological effects, such as inflammation of other tissues apart from the immune system, tissue damage, and a coagulopathy. (laughs) Now, those things are really bad, and they result in the non-AIDS morbidity and mortality that we'll hear about today. Now, we are talking about this in the era of antiretroviral therapy, and antiretroviral therapy subdues many of the things I've been talking about. It fixes them to a certain degree, but not completely. You still have immune activation. And immune activation is a bit good for you, because it causes T cell proliferation, which increases your T cell numbers. Okay, So that's good for you. But it also continues to cause inflammation, tissue damage, non-AIDS, morbidity, and mortality. So we'll come back to this later. And here we go. If you measure activated T cells in untreated, treated, and uninfected individuals, you can see, as many of you um, as many of you um, uh, showed earlier on when we looked at the questions, that T-cell activation declines during long-term antiretroviral therapy, but it remains elevated even after many years of viral suppression. And it's bad for you. The more activated T-cells you have, the lower is your CD4 T-cell recovery, Okay. And this is a lovely slide put together by Peter Hunt, showing that markers of inflammation and dysfunction of the gastrointestinal tract can actually predict mortality. So this is the measure of intestinal fatty acid binding protein, a marker of the state, the um, state of the gut epithelial lining um, in HIV-infected individuals. And you can see that if it's raised in plasma, it predicts mortality. And these markers of inflammation, such as D-dimer and IL-6, look at that, a 70-fold odds ratio of mortality. So markers of inflammation and gut barrier dysfunction actually predict mortality, and importantly, they do this independently of CD4 count and virus load. So we're beginning to tie together now disease progression with inflammation and its causes, such as gut dysfunction. So there are two sides to everything, as my nine-year-old son will tell you. He he gave me this slide. Um, There's the good side, the light side. Immune activation, as we discussed earlier on, causes antiviral innate immune responses. It's good for you. It keeps you alive. And because it causes proliferation of T cells, it allows for a degree of restoration of memory CD4 T cells when you put people on antiretroviral therapy. However, immune activation can turn to the dark side. See why it's a good slide? It has a dark side. It causes target cell generation, food for the virus, which in turn leads to HIV replication, thymic dysfunction, T and B cell exhaustion, cellular activation. The chemokines and cytokines that we talked about are elevated and circulating. It causes fibrosis of the lymph nodes, scarring of all the lymphoid tissue, generalized tissue fibrosis in the heart, in the lungs, in the liver, in the kidneys. It activates the coagulation cascade, and it causes a whole host of other things that we don't have time to go into at the moment, and that we will be discovering in the years to come. It also potentially causes HIV persistence. And this is where immune activation becomes important in terms of a cure for HIV, eradicating the virus from infected individuals. And we can ask the question, does inflammation in treated individuals contribute to HIV persistence? And the flip side of that is, does HIV replication, ongoing replication in treated individuals, does that contribute to persistent inflammation? And if we answer those questions, can we then suggest novel therapies that could actually reduce the reservoir size, which is what you want to do when you're eradicating the virus? Could we perhaps use anti-inflammatory drugs as an adjuvant therapy? Could we enhance HIV-specific immunity? It's very difficult to establish cause and effect in infected individuals. But we can begin to establish associations. And we can do that, for example, by doing what I think of as an experiment in humans, raltegravir intensification. So here are data from the um, group in Barcelona, where HIV-infected individuals were given standard therapy and therapy intensified with raltegravir. And what they found was that raltegravir intensification actually reduces immune activation, blue line here, significantly more than conventional therapy. So here's a suggestion that if you beat down the virus even more, even when you couldn't detect it to begin with, you are having an effect on immune activation. And you're also having an effect on virus. So raltegravir intensification in nine subjects in this study resulted in a decrease in detectable virus as well as a decrease in CD8 T cell activation. So we're connecting ongoing virus replication with immune activation and treated in treated individuals. However, this study showed no association between plasma measures of virus persistence, you can see here the single copy assay for RNA on this axis, and T cell activation in blood activated T cells on this axis here. So if you look in the plasma, and you look in the blood, in this study, you don't see an effect of raltegravir intensification. So what's going on? Sometimes you see an effect, sometimes you don't. The key is where you look for the virus. Okay? We had this question earlier on. Where you look for the virus? So in this study, if you look at virus in rectal tissue compared to activated T cells in rectal tissue, in this study, virus in rectal tissue here, activated T cells in the rectal tissue here. There is a stronger association between cell-based measures of virus persistence and T cell activation in the gastrointestinal tissue. Remember, that's where the majority of your CD4 T cells are. Okay? So look in the right place. And here, I think, is a, one, of the, one of the best studies from uh, Diane Havlin in San Francisco, where she showed that Raltegravir intensification reduces both immune activation, you can see here, in these tissue sites, ileum colon and rectum, much more so than the peripheral blood, both immune activation and, look at the terminal ileum here, a reduction in HIV RNA levels in these gut tissue sites. So what about ongoing replication of HIV during antiretroviral therapy? Well. Although complete inhibition of virus replication is in itself unlikely to be curative in an infected individual, all cure strategies or functional cure strategies are based on first having achieved complete suppression. You want to reduce virus as much as possible before you're going to get anywhere. Now, you all know that there is plenty of evidence against ongoing HIV replication on antiretroviral therapy. Um, And Bob Silicano has shown a lot of very, very good data to that effect. But there is increasing evidence in favor of ongoing replication during antiretroviral therapy. And Steve Deeks has shown a lot of evidence to that effect. And I think there's going to be more evidence accumulating over the next few years. What's important, what I'm showing you here, is that the evidence for ongoing HIV replication during therapy is that it's associated with ongoing immune activation. So these two aspects are intrinsically tied together. Now the source of the sample is key. If you're looking for ongoing replication and you measure the blood and you don't find anything, you think, fine, there's nothing going on. Our therapy is absolutely fine. But if you were to measure HIV replication in the tissues, such as in the gut or in the lymph nodes, you may find some ongoing replication. And therefore, the assay that you use to measure it is absolutely critical. So, if you use an assay that goes down to 50 copies per for blood, you may not find anything. You'd be very happy with the therapy, and that is as far as you will go in thinking about HIV pathogenesis. But if you look in the gut, or if you look in the lymph node, and you do an assay that can measure one copy of HIV in 10 to the 12 cells, and you can detect that, then you may find that there's ongoing replication, and it is causing ongoing inflammation and the inflammation is causing ongoing replication and so on. So these are very, very important aspects. Which brings me to the Visconti cohort that I'm sure you've read about in the New York Times, if not in the updates of Croy. Um, And I'm going to mention this briefly because I think it really helps to make a point about activation and the reservoir. The French study, um, 14 subjects who started therapy very, very early in infection, I think this is going to be key. They remained on combination therapy for many, many years, and then therapy was stopped. And here I'm comparing individuals in acute infection, chronic, and on antiretroviral therapy, elite controllers, and the Visconti cohort here, the post-therapy controllers. And when therapy was stopped, the Visconti cohort did not rebound in terms of their virus load. Now, like elite controllers, they had very low cell-associated HIV DNA, but remember, Elite controllers have immune activation and can progress. In contrast to the elite controllers, the Visconti cohort had very, very low T cell activation. So I think what we're going to understand from this is if you treat very early, you make sure that that reservoir is very, very low to begin with, you have very low immune activation to begin with, you set the equilibrium, all those circles that I had earlier on. You set that equilibrium in a completely different place. What about HIV-specific immunity and HIV persistence? You have an immune response, okay? CD8 T-cells and antibodies which try to suppress uh, virus replication. Well, we know that immune activation adversely affects HIV-specific T-cell responses. I don't have time to go into the data. Please take my word. Immune activation also adversely affects CD4 T cell immune reconstitution overall. I showed you those data earlier on. So, if you're trying to reconstitute an HIV specific T cell response, uh, you're going to have problems because of your immune activation. So, is there a relationship between HIV specific immunity and the HIV reservoir? Maybe, a little bit. This is some work from Hiroyu Hatana, where she showed that on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, strong HIV specific T cell responses that you can see measured on this axis are associated with lower levels of PBMC virus DNA. And I think, again, we need to go on and look in the tissues. So HIV-specific immunity and HIV persistence may also be intimately related. So what mechanisms, therefore, associate immune activation with HIV persistence? Can we tie this all together? And if we can tie it all together, how can that then direct therapeutic interventions in terms of eradicating the virus from infected individuals? So I left you here a while ago with this picture of the circles and HIV disease pathogenesis. And I hope now that if you go out into the wide world and someone says to you, can you explain HIV pathogenesis to me, you'll say, sure. and You'll draw this. okay, Quite so. It really is. We put people in antiretroviral therapy, and we fix a lot of things. But we don't fix everything. And I've just gone over now some data suggesting that the residual immune activation could cause the replication of cells that contain virus, even without producing more virus. It causes T cell replication. If those cells are infected, the reservoir will increase in size. There may even be production of virus on antiretroviral therapy. So new variants are produced with new infection events. So let's take immune activation and put it into the center of the picture. It causes a lot of bad things to the immune system. It causes a low thymic output. It causes lymphoid tissue fibrosis, or scarring up your lymph nodes. It causes poor immune reconstitution, or renewal of your CD4 T-cell. It causes dysfunction of T and B cells. And it continues to cause mucosal damage at the gut surface. The result of that is that in your your immune suppressed, you have poor control of pathogens, streptococcus, staphylococcus, herpes viruses, all of these things that you're familiar with even in your patients who have very low or undetectable HIV virus loads. And you continue to have microbial products leaking across the gut, and all of this causes immune activation. So you have a cycle of activation and damage going on here. Now we've just discussed that immune activation has effects on the reservoir of HIV, even on therapy. It'll cause generation of target cells for the virus, activated T cells. And by doing that, Cells that are already infected with the virus will proliferate, producing more cells that are already infected with the virus. The virus may start transcribing. Some virus may be produced. And there is increasing evidence for new infection events, even on fully suppressive antiretroviral therapy. And what does that do? Causes more HIV. And what does HIV do? Causes immune activation, because it's a virus. Now, you're producing more HIV. And normally, your immune response would contribute to the control of HIV. But because you remain immune deficient, you have poor immune control of HIV, so it doesn't control that. And then what you get are the effects of HIV infection on all of these things, which is how you started with acute infection in the first place. Now. This isn't all bad news. I don't want you to come away from this talk really depressed and say, Dr. Duet said it's all hopeless. We should give up and become farmers. What this picture does is that it gives us clues as to where we can intervene therapeutically. Each one of these phrases here, and each one of these points here, we can intervene therapeutically with drugs. And there are many therapeutic interventions in development, in studies in humans, in non-human primates, and proposed. Hemokine receptors, for example. Anti-infective therapy. So let's treat CMV and EBV into current infection and see if that can bring down immune activation. Let's treat microbial translocation. Let's enhance T-cell renewal. Antifibrotic drugs to repair the lymph nodes of the gut are in trial. Anti-aging drugs. I would love some of those. Anti-inflammatory drugs that you can see listed here and anticoagulants, because HIV infection, even during therapy, is a hypercoagulable state. But if there's one thing that I want you to to take home with you, is the message that combination therapy may, may be necessary, because I've shown you that the pathogenesis of HIV is multifactorial. And in the context of the cure, there are multiple mechanisms that can account for HIV persistence, all of which are and can be addressed therapeutically. The unifying theme is to reduce HIV reservoir size, so reduce the inflammation that we've been talking about, and increase immune function. Early antiretroviral therapy and ART intensification. I'm saying this as a private citizen, not as a representative of the government. More complicated things, such as gene therapy, to reduce reservoir size. Stem cell transplants, as we all know from Timothy Brown, the Berlin patient, can reduce reservoir size. We're not going to do that in everyone or even a few people, but maybe that's a good principle that we can apply. Drugs with biologic activity against the latent virus exist and are being tried, as you know. And vaccines may enhance host clearance mechanism. If we boost that damaged HIV-specific response, then maybe that can help us eradicate the virus in vivo. And again, one of these therapies alone is not going to do the trick. What's important is combination therapy to address this issue. All right, let's go back to the questions, and then let's finish up. So what happens to the systemic immune activation that I've just been describing during combination and antiretroviral therapy? Decreases to normal levels, it goes up, it decreases but stays above normal, or it stays the same. I love you guys. I love you to begin with. I love you even more. That's right. It decreases to above normal levels. And that may be one of the key factors in preventing um, normalcy on antiretroviral therapy. The next slide. Which anatomical sites most likely contain the bulk of the HIV reservoir on art, the blood, the brain, the gut, or the lymphoid tissues? actually the lymphoid tissues. The gut is the biggest lymphoid tissue in the body. But what happens in HIV infection? You've destroyed all the CD4 T cells in the gut. Okay, So the other lymphoid tissues are what you should be thinking about, all right? The lymph nodes, the spleen, and all of those. The gut is part of the lymphoid tissues. So take that message home with you. And finally, is there ongoing virus replication on art? Yes, no, maybe, only on some. I think you're all right. I think, actually, all of those answers are right. In some people, it's yes. In some people, it's no. In some people, it's maybe. And in other infected people, it may only be on Sundays as well. So you all win, you're all very good, and finally, um, thanks to all my collaborators for some great times, and thank you all for your attention. Thank you. Are we gonna take questions now? Yeah, all right. So we have time for a few questions. Uh, While we're gathering them, if I could, um, let me ask one, and that is that, since most of us can't do uh, Lymphoid tissue biopsies or gut biopsies. Are there any surrogates now that we should be looking at in our patients to think about who we might want to either refer for some of these studies or whatever? Yeah. And I I think that slide I showed you earlier on with all the different plasma factors associated and predictive of disease, um, you know, an IL 6.